Thanks for tuning in to the DLA Piper AI podcast series. For those who did not tune in to previous editions, this series discusses the use of artificial intelligence in several fields of law. Today, we're exploring the topic AI at the workplace. I am Pierre Dion, your moderator of today, an employment lawyer at DLA Piper in Brussels. I'm joined here today by my fellow colleague and team member Laurent de Surgelode. Hello, everybody. Look forward to our discussion. Thanks, Laurent. Good to have you with us. Thank Let you, me Claire. also introduce our friends from FTI Consulting, Eleanor Wahal and Sabine Klappard. Welcome. Please introduce yourselves. Hello, everyone. I'm Aline Arval. I'm an expert in European and international AI governance and director at FTI Consulting Brussels. It's lovely to be here today. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Sabine Klappard and I lead the people and transformation practice at FTI in Brussels. Great. AI brings new improvements to in our lives at home and at work. Technology could, for example, be used to improve the work-life balance of employees. By automating processes, it could also improve efficiency and increase the focus on meaningful tasks. But there are also genuine concerns on how AI will impact the workplace. The change it will bring to the workplace will definitely be significant. Some even say, with a lot of drama, that we are at the onset of an industrial revolution 4.0 and that this will arrive far more quickly than anyone had expected. Surely the changes AI will bring will impact nearly all aspects of employment, I believe. Yes, absolutely. Um, if we look at the research, there are several reports, including one by the World Economic Forum, that say that AI will have displaced 75 million jobs globally by 2025. But equally, it will have created 133 million new jobs. The report also expects that today already about 42% of business tasks are automated and that more than 6 in 10 workers will require some form of reskilling in the coming years. In this session, we will zoom in on some major shifts AI brings to the workforce. Now let's start at the beginning, of course, which in employment terms is obviously recruitment. Yes, Over to you, Laurent. Yes, indeed, Pierre. So AI is already frequently used in uh, recruitment processes, selection processes by employers, for example, for uh, sifting CVs. Now, some say that the use of AI, um, well, the big advantage is, is that it would reduce the risk of unconscious bias that humans have when they do a selection process. Um, the reason is that they, the AI is fed by um, data that is not um, considering any futures like uh, race or gender or the tone of your voice or eye color and so on. However, when you do a deep dive, you notice that this belief is in fact a myth. So in one word, bias is really a key point of attention when using uh, AI in a selection process. A question to you, Sabine. What do you think are the key issues when it comes to using AI to recruit talents? Any thoughts? Yeah, I agree with Laura. It's, um, it definitely has the potential to increase bias and decrease bias. Um, so let's maybe first look at how it can decrease uh, bias. Um, humans are generally biased. We all are. And we like to hire people who look like us, sound like us and think like us. 
And AI can help decrease this what we call diversity bias in recruitment by providing a more objective and data-driven approach to how we evaluate job candidates. It can also help level the playing field, for instance, by supporting differently abled people, people who are, for example, visually impaired. Um, they can be given screen readers provided with spoken language interfaces, given special keyboards or handheld uh, navigation software. But of course, AI can also increase bias. As Laurent mentioned, if the training data is biased, then the decisions that AI makes will also be biased. And this is often the case because there is a lack of diversity in training. In the workforce, if a hiring algorithm is trained on historical hiring data that is biased against certain demographic groups, then the algorithm may inadvertently discriminate against those groups when making hiring decisions. I'll give you an example. If, for instance, women of color are underrepresented in data sets, facial recognition software has a higher failure rate when identifying women with darker skin tones. Or another example, if let's for instance say AI has learned based on data that people called Mark do better than people called Mary, um, they will be ranked higher and therefore existing biases in society will be reflected and even amplified through this data. So if I, AI is used in a naive way without implementing safeguards to avoid algorithmic bias, then the technology will repeat and amplify biases that already exist in our society and potentially even create new ones. But if we use it cleverly and responsibly, then recruiters can also use AI tools to discover high potential candidates, for instance, outside of job boards and other traditional sources. And this way, employers can find and attract much more diverse candidates. That's really fascinating stuff. Wow. Laurent, any legal thoughts, thoughts on these concerns? Yes, yeah, certainly. Well, from a legal perspective, um, first point of attention is data privacy, of course, and concerns around data privacy. Well, we have, of course, GDPR, and under GDPR, you have all kinds of principles that you have to comply with. Uh, for example, you need a lawful basis to uh, process data, you have fairness, transparency, uh, data minimization, and so on. Now, when you look at um, recruitment selection processes, you have an employer and an employee relationship or an employer looking for candidates. Now, consent could be uh, a lawful basis to process data. Of course, you have the Belgium Data Privacy, uh, data privacy Authority and also at European level, they um, consider that there could be an imbalance of power between uh, one side the employer and the other side the employee or the candidate. Because, of course, the if you look at a candidate, he's really eager to have the job. And so maybe he's going to give his consent, uh, even uh, to be sure that he will have the job because he's scared of having any negative consequences of giving a an, 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 uh, negative answer to the use of AI in the process. So that's why um, the validity of such a consent could be cons uh, contested. Now, an employer can still rely on uh, consent as a valid base, provided that there are certain uh, 
limitations and certain conditions that are uh, met. For example, well, the applicants should be completely free to, uh, well, to, to choose either either to go for AI or to say, no, I don't want my data to be processed. And there should be no limitation uh, in their freedom. The smallest limitation in their freedom could in fact, um, well, imply that the consent is not freely given. Another thing is that um, applicants should not suffer any negative consequences because they refuse uh, to give their consent for such a processing of data through AI, but they should also not receive any positive reward. For example, you can imagine that somebody would give, uh, would have a better position in the selection process because he said, okay, I'm, I will consent to the use of AI. This is, of course, totally uh, prohibited. And another last point that an employer should take into account when uh, the, the legal basis would be consent is that the consent for the use of AI in a recruitment process should not be linked uh, whatsoever to any other form of consent for any other topic. So it should be completely um, separated uh, from those things. Now, what an employer could do to mitigate the risk of the fact that the, the consent should be contested would be to use a, what we would call a third-party provider. And this third-party provider would then be responsible for uh, processing uh, the data of the, the candidates. Now, that means that the employer will not get the raw data processed, but only an aggregate data. So that would limit the risk. So you can get the consent, but then if you use like a third-party provider, the question is whether this aggregate data is sufficient to make uh, a good decision for which candidate I should uh, select. Now, Laura, in, can I ask yeah, a question certainly. on that? Does that mean that the, uh, an employer would no longer be able to tell the race, the gender, the age, all those kinds of things? Well, for example, race is a very good example. And um, I want, I, 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 that was, in fact, the, the next thing I wanted to say, that in a, any event, every employer will have to imp, uh, implement certain uh, technical and organizational measures because anonymization of the data is really key. Meaning that you cannot, you should not be able to single out persons with the data that you have collected. And if you take that into account, this principle, that means, for example, that race will be really an issue to process. Because if you take into account race, the, the answers to the questions will be quite limited, meaning that it is going to be quite easy to single out person. This person uh, said A, B, C. And so that means that from a data perspective, the protection is not assured anymore, and so you, the, the processing is not valid anymore. So you really have a risk there. Does that mean they can no longer answer, ask the question, or they still can? Well, for race, only if, it's, if you could justify that it's really necessary for the job. But, I mean, you don't have many examples, I think. So... Uh, Basically, it means that you will not be able, because you will not be able to justify. So it's not really useful for the job or really necessary or required. And that's exactly also the reason why in a lot of CVs or surveys, etc., you, you, you always see uh, 
like option D, prefer not to say because you need really valid consent and the consent cannot be, be to the detriment of the candidates. So if they're not feeling comfortable of sharing that sensitive data, they're not supposed to do that. And because they don't share that, there cannot be any disadvantages for that person either. Okay, so it cannot exclude them from the process either, because yeah. often you see that you have to fill in forms and there are fields that are mandatory. Um, I know that um, history of uh, wages and remuneration is often one. Does that mean that's also no longer allowed? Well, remuneration... That's, or race, whatever. Huh? Well, yeah, remuneration, maybe there you could have uh, a discussion. But again, I, I, I don't see really when you're applying for a job and the employer needs data to make a, a, a rational decision who is the best candidate, why race would make any difference. The only thing that I think Pierre would, will maybe uh, discuss that, that point is if you want to Im, uh, implement um, a sort of a positive discrimination yeah. policy, but in certain countries, this is creates a lot of issues. Also, with current legislation, it's more a certain Anglo-Saxon way of seeing things. But again, I think race is going to be a really a tough nut to crack. Yeah, I mean, let's. I mean, like already, you're you're going too fast. I mean, but anyway, <laughs> I can do this Sorry. now. <laughs> is that no? I mean, we do have affirmative action in place. Um, in the US, for example, it's very common to have these things. In Europe, it's less likely to, to have. It's a, it's a very unique thing to do. It's also not a really sets in our culture. If you do that in Belgium, for example, that's really looked at in a strange way. Uh, in, our, in our knowledge, I think there are like two or three examples in Belgium. That's it. Um, the thing is, it's first of all, it's cultural. So affirmative action plan is not really embedded in our HR culture. That's one of the first and foremost uh, reasons. But also the, the legal framework around data protection, and especially as Laurent said, the sensitive personal data that you need to process are very restrictive. You have GDPR, you have personal data laws in Belgium that are very employee protected, and that makes sense. So if you want to have an exception to say, okay, we want to process sensitive data exactly for a specific purpose, that's always a difficult story. And that's also basically translates into the complexity of the legal framework around these affirmative action plans. In Belgium, you have to, uh, well, it comes close to asking permission of the Pope to, to, <laughs> to implement these things. So you have to fill in like an, an adherence act. You have to go to the ministry. They have to sign off on it. And then still... You have a presumption that it's okay, but it can still be challenged. So if you put these things, combine these things like cultural, not really popular and the stringent legal framework, that basically sees why we don't see a lot of affirmative action plans. Um, shall I continue anti-discrimination? Because I think there's a lot of things that I, we can discuss there. Um, so basically that's that that follows up on what we're just discussing so another point besides the sensitive uh, the personal data uh, is also anti-discrimination laws huh? so in belgium some people are very proud of that we have a very extensive and one of the most robust anti-discrimination laws of the world even um, which prohibits basically unlawful difference in treatment of employees or job applicants in this case on the basis of certain criteria which are defined by law. I think of gender, sexual orientation, race, handicap, religion, uh, union affiliation, etc. So basically, if you, if you want to diverse or differentiate treatment based on these criteria, you must be able to justify the difference in treatment 
and it must be made under legitimate and objective reasons, which are verifiable. I know that's a lot of legalese, but just give you an example. Um, we have already an example in the UK when where a multinational of the cosmetics industry, obviously we're not going to talk names, um, decided to do a mass layoff, I think 4,000 or 5,000 uh, employees. And they just said, well, we want to benchmark it as objectively as possible and to remove all the human bias, etc. So we're going to ask AI to just do a review of all the employees and say, okay, these are the benchmarks, let's say performance, seniority, etc. And then ask for the results. And we're just going to purely base our reorganization and the scope based on the results of AI. So obviously that sounds very cool and interesting, but there is a thing that an employer every sensitive decision, the employer must be able to explain why we have targeted Sabine, Laurent, and not Pierre and Elinor. Eh? So that's the law. And there it got a bit stuck because AI currently does not allow reverse engineering. So you cannot go back and say, what are the criteria that AI used to select these people? So basically the only argument obviously, I mean, the employees affected were not really happy because they were not really explained why. And I mean, to put it a bit simplistic, the only thing employer could say was computer says, no, sorry, you have to go. So now we see there is a class action also pending. I think already 10,000, uh, 1,000 employees already claimed that their dismissal was manifest. So that is also a key challenge for AI. That's that reverse engineering that you say, okay, we need to use AI. That's fine. That's very useful. But the results, uh, the outcome of the AI, you still need to link it back to, okay, these are the results based on these criteria, and we can show that these criteria are valid because of X, Y, Z. Uh, so um, that's definitely a, a key point of attention when using AI. And Laurent will talk later about the quality of data sets, um, is to target specific people when you do that with AI. Uh, it should first be checked if isolating these people as such is not discriminatory of nature. Um, that's obviously a very key challenge that employers will, will face. And currently, it's still very difficult. That's why we also see that a lot of employers are rather reluctant to use AI in very important HR decisions currently. But Laurent, you had some thoughts about quality of the data sets, I believe. Well, yes. Well, if you consider all these legal restrictions, it is clear that the quality of the data set that you will use to fit into the AI system is a major challenge because every data set that you use, you will always have to take into account that it will need to comply during the entire process with data privacy laws and with um, anti-discrimination uh, legislation to avoid any discrim uh, discriminatory results. And if, in fact, that opens up many questions when you use AI in a recruitment and a selection process. For example, how can you ensure that the data set, the quality of the data set, uh, will, well, is good enough that the candidates will not be filtered or selected in a discriminatory way? Um, on which criteria did the system quantify the quality of each candidate? And also, how can you avoid that intentionally or unintentionally? The system starts to use data that is really sensitive, like uh, race, age, uh, sex, or 
union affiliation, for example, which would then, if, you, if the system starts to use that, okay, you increase immediately uh, the risks of uh, discrimination. Now, the conclusion is that the data that you will have to make a decision will be, in fact, the volume will be quite limited. Means that with the data that you have to take a decision, the quality should be really very good in order to be able to take a rational decision between candidates. And another point that you as an employer will need to take into account is that when you take the decision, ah, candidate A will be selected, candidate B will, B will not be selected, you will need to be able to demonstrate in an objective way why candidate A was selected and not B. That means human oversight is absolutely necessary because if you lie on a system that is com completely out of control and you don't know why and how it was, but it's the system, so oh, it's candidate A because the system said it's A. No, that doesn't work like that. You, you, don't, you will face uh, big issues. No, as an employer, you will have a big responsibility regarding the justification of the candidate and that means that in your organization you will need to have people that well checks the system and intervenes when it's necessary when the system is out of control for example or uh, starts to use sensitive data yeah thanks laurent i think it's interesting because you don't want ai to <laughs> turn, I mean, you don't want AI to become like a mean discrimination automatic machine because then you're really in trouble. So I think human oversight definitely makes sense and that's very essential. Now, maybe you can take a few steps back to look at the wider picture. So and talk about AI in employment context in general, so not only recruitment. So we all know that the EU AI Act will be adopted soon. Um, Laurent, will this legislation provide extra legal protection to address the concerns we, we just mentioned? Well, it's clear that there is a, a strong um, concern that AI system, that there could be a, a misuse of AI system in an employment context. And you see that in the, the draft AI Act that still needs to be voted on, I think. Um, so the current draft um, defines four categories based uh, of AI system on a risk-based approach. So if you, you have the, the prohibited systems, you have the high risk, the limited, and the minimal risk system. Um, AI in an employment context will likely be considered as a high risk system. And so uh, meaning that it will be subject to certain strict obligations before you can put such a system uh, on the market. Um, and requirements are really designed to prevent biases or uh, unbiased results. Um, for example, when you have an AI system, the, this AI system must be able to lock activities to ensure traceability of the results. Um, like we discussed, it needs to have high quality standards of the data uh, sets fit into the system. And what we also discussed, it needs human oversight to avoid that the system is out of control. And again, if you look at those three requirements, uh, they are clearly designed to uh, ta tackle the legal concerns that we discussed, uh, meaning data privacy concerns and discrimination. Um, so in other words, it's clear that the AI or the draft AI Act, um, well, 
tackle these legal concerns. But of course, we need to see whether it will be enough in practice. That's something that we cannot uh, really uh, take a yeah. decide on, upon. On the other hand, we cannot really expect the AI Act to cover every employment issue. That's just impossible. Uh, for example, it doesn't cover the questions around ensuring compliance with employee transparency obligations. Um, AI obviously still needs to comply with the laws in that regard. So employers need to avoid tripping over their existing legal transparency obligations via their vis-à-vis their workforce. So just to zoom in on Belgian law, eh? so they require a lot of information and consultation with employees and employee representatives before any final decision can be taken. Eh? So every important HR decision just in general is subject to these requirements. Um, and for example, there are information and inf- consultation requirements within the context of reorganizations. Something we will obviously definitely see when AI becomes mainstream at work. Eh? Sabine, I refer to your interesting uh, statistics at the beginning of this session. Um, and then you are, there are a lot of questions that, that pop up. So when you are using AI to set up the scope and effects of a reorganization, when do these transparency requirements kick in? Eh? Knowing that they must be complied with before any final decision has been taken and that the organization is still an envisaged organization and not something final. Um, there are a lot of options here. So the first one, you could say, we're going to trigger information and consultation when test period for new AI tools, you test the message, etc., and you see what kind of outcome you have, is coming to a close and the employer is able to assess the impact to the business that will be generated according to the result of the tool. So then you could say, we have the result, it is sufficiently materialized to be an intention, and then we go to information and consultation. Uh, a second one that might be a bit more problematic for employers is to say, well, as soon as you decided that you order or sign a commercial agreement to purchase or uh, rent an AI tool for the specific reason or purpose to proceed to organization, well, that could also already be an intention that you want to do something. And that would mean that you would be able to already inform and consult after, I mean, you have purchased the tool, but not to have the result. And obviously, that's not really the ideal solution for employers because we have a lot of clients, and I'm sure FTI has as well. They are very transparent towards their employees and they want to be very open. But there is a difference between informing and consulting before you already use the tool because then, I mean, you cannot imagine the kind of panic you could you could create. So that's really an issue. Eh? So that's something we need to think about. Um, and to add complexity to expla- uh, complexity, sorry, we're lawyers, we like complex things and like complicating stuff. <laughs> so uh, another thought is when and how does an employer need to communicate about re- reorganization when AI is used as an evolving process, meaning that the impact on existing roles is realized over time. And so you don't really know when, and you aren't necessarily able to predict exactly how these those impacts will happen in advance. And so think of, for example, you order a tool and you just say, we don't really have like a specific scope in mind today, but it is possible that if we just do like a benchmarking on performance management, for example, it is possible that an entire team of employees or specific roles, I would say, you can get rid of these people because they are just uh, creating inefficiencies. If you do that, when do you inform and consult employee representatives then? Because it's evolving. So that's 
I think, major questions that um, employers will need to think of when AI becomes mainstream. Um, one of many, and I think, Laurent, um, contractual status is also something you had in mind. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting topic and hopefully not only for lawyers. <laughs> but um, it's a topic that is not really addressed by the AI Act. Right? Um, and is the impact that AI will have or AI systems on uh, contractual relationships. Because, well, in most countries you have employees and self-employed, like an employee, somebody that performs his work for an employer in a subordinate relationship in the framework of an employment contract. A self-employed is, is somebody who is, that's more the negative definition then, that is free uh, to organize his work in the framework of a service agreement um, and the contracted party is then a client. So he's not in a subordinate relationship. He's just, he receives a fee and he performs a certain services. Now, when you start using AI, this is like a third party that is not part of a traditional uh, contractual relationship. This could have an impact on these legal definitions and these legal definitions, uh, they have implications, many implications, social security and obligations for both parties, etc. But if you have an AI uh, system that starts to give instructions to uh, persons, okay, what is then the relationship? What is the status of this system? It opens up all kinds of questions because you could ask yourself the question whether the person you are an employee, you receive uh, instruction from an um, AI system. Okay, are you still an employee? Uh, or are you something else? Are you self-employed or a, a new category maybe? Um, and what is then the AI system? Can an AI system give instructions to employees? Is this AI system an employer? I mean, this is a really quite weird question, but I mean, the employer is the, the the person or the organization giving the instruction, but in that relationship is the AI system. There is no human oversight, so it's quite difficult. And to give a really practical example that is already, and everybody knows it, is platform economy. There you have persons receiving instructions to deliver a certain goods at a certain, in a, a certain timing, within a certain timing, a certain place, you receive instructions from uh, an AI system. And there you could ask yourself the question, the person receiving the instructions, is he an employee? Is he self-employed? Is he something else? Or who does he report into? Yeah. Who is he reporting to? Who the employer, we need to determine the entire set of legislation of employment law has obligations for the employer. But who is the employer? This AI system or is it the organization behind? So it's it really, um, it's a bit legal science fiction, but it already exists. So I think it's, um, and there is no legislation that deals with it. So maybe the lawmaker will step in or maybe the tribunals will have to take a standpoint and will then see whether in Belgium they will take the same decisions than in Italy or in France. So it's it's something really, uh, an interesting topic. I think. Yeah, definitely. I think as employment lawyers, we have def you have exciting times ahead and, I think next to lawyers, we also need to be philosophers because we need to think of can something that doesn't exist or an algorithm, can it be your employer? So that's very interesting. But I mean, 
We're doing it again, lawyers. That's another problem about lawyers. We talk too much. <laughs> so maybe we can move away from the from the the legal side of things and focus on the political side of things. So uh, the use of AI in the workforce is also very sensitive politically. I can imagine, Eleanor. Um, how has AI in the workforce been addressed in the political debate at European level? Um, what are the implications on terms of policy? Yeah, absolutely, Pierre. This is all uh, quite relevant from a political perspective. And it's actually very interesting what Laurent was saying about algorithms potentially being your new employer, so to say. Because right now, while it, it is true that currently we don't have a formal uh, legislation on this yet, However, the European institutions are working on a proposal on what is called the so-called Platform Workers Directive. So, as Laurent was mentioning, most of us are actually familiar with a lot of these examples. So we have, for instance, food delivery and ride hailing hubs. And in this case, what is really interesting to note is actually, as Laurent was rightfully saying, in those cases, it is really the app that tells the worker where to go and when, for instance, to perform their duties. So the European institutions are addressing this type of work uh, with a proposed directive that is aimed at clearly determining the employment status of these workers and to improve transparency and fairness in algorithmic management. And it is for this reason that many consider this directive as a first example of legislation on AI in the workplace. Now, let's break it down a bit. So the European Commission introduced five key criteria of control as part of this directive. So these criteria include the workers' level of pay, guidelines for appearance and behavior, electronic supervision, limited flexibility in working hours or task refusal, and restrictions on working for other platforms sim simultaneously. If at least two of these criteria are met, it is presumed that the relationship between the platform and the worker is one of employment mm -hmm. and not freelancing. And of course, this would grant the workers uh, with access to labor and social protection rights. Additionally, the proposal mandates human oversight of algorithms, as we were uh, saying right before. So giving those conducting the monitoring um, the right to challenge automated decisions. And more generally, this is definitely, there is definitely a lot of political momentum around this theme uh, at the moment, laying the groundwork for a possible broader proposal under the new, well, the next European Commission in, in the near future. Yeah, I think uh, the commissioner, Nicola Schmidt, already released that it will be uh, something top of mind to the next commission. So, yes, indeed, something to uh, to follow up. But, I mean, in the meantime, we already get a lot of questions from our clients and, and also concerns around how generative AI specifically will shape our workplace of the future. Um, Sabine, do you have any ideas on how companies should best deal with this? Any tips and tricks you can give them? Yeah, I was listening actually to you guys speak and also wondering how often do clients already approach you with questions around how to implement generative AI in them, in their companies. And I think for all of us, all companies across the world, this is a new frontier and no, none of us have ever been here before. Um, so when we set out guidelines, um, we're doing it to the best of our ability without really knowing what we're getting into right now. So bear that in mind when, um, when, I, give, um, when I give my um, thoughts on this. But I think first and foremost, companies must proactively prepare frameworks and prioritize 
ethical use of AI. Um, we can't take a wait and see um, response to this topic. So establishing ethical guidelines uh, to prevent biases, discrimination, addressing concerns about transparency, fairness, all those things, that's absolutely key. Um, the second thing is actually, to me, the most important, and it's been mentioned a couple of times in our conversation, human oversight. Um, humans must stay involved. They must review. They must validate the content generated uh, to ensure quality, accuracy, adherence to organizational values. Um, and I think the third thing, which is also important, is accountability. Companies must take responsibility for the content generated by AI systems under their control. They must establish clear guidelines. They must have policies. They must have standards for the use of generative AI, including the types of content that can be generated, the appropriate context for the use of this content, and any necessary approvals or safeguards. And then also, equally important, you've mentioned it, both of you, transparency and trust. Um, companies need to be trans as transparent as possible with employees, with customers, and with other stakeholders about how they use generative AI in their operations. So openly communicating about how it's employed, what its limitations are today in as far as we understand them, and the measures that as companies we've taken and put in place to ensure that we use it responsibly. But employers also need to consider the legal requirements around information and consultation and when these required requirements are triggered uh, when using AI. And then finally, I think we need to have a continuous learning approach on the topic. We need to have regular feedback mechanisms and audits in place because this is not a we have AI covered once and for all, sorted, done and dusted, let's move on. So I think um, it needs to be a strategic topic um, at the boardroom table and I'm not convinced that today it is yeah. and it really should be. Well, I asked for a couple of tips and tricks, so I didn't expect such so many great ideas. So that's very insi insightful. Um, I also assume that these attention points would need to be confirmed in policy sooner or later. So, Eleanor, you already mentioned that for the time being, it's a bit lacking, I would say. But at a certain point, it needs to be done. So maybe you can shed some light on how the AU AI Act can help to do that. Absolutely. So the AI Act plays a central role for the future of generative AI, AI in Europe, uh, might I say. So at this stage, interinstitutional inter negotiations are still going on between the EU institutions, which means we don't have uh, full clarity yet on the specific provisions that will make it into the final text. But in the ongoing uh, legislative work to amend the text, the European Parliament has proposed the strictest framework for generative AI. And for the European Parliament, providers of foundation models should be responsible for all the necessary due diligence on their offering. And in particular, this should include three elements. So the first one is risk identification. Even though it is not possible to identify in advance all the potential use cases of, foundation, of a foundation model, providers are typically aware of certain vectors of risk, and the European Parliament would make it mandatory to identify and mitigate reasonably foreseeable risks with the support of independent experts as well. The second one is testing. 
So providers should seek to ensure that foundation models achieve appropriate levels of performance, predictability, interpretability, safety, and cybersecurity. Since the foundation model functions as a building block for many downstream AI systems, it should meet certain minimum standards. And finally, the third one is documentation. So providers of foundation models would be required to provide substantial documentation and intelligible usage instructions. This is essential not only to help downstream AI system providers better understand what exactly um, they are refining or fine-tuning, but also to enable to comply with any regulatory requirement. So the ongoing negotiations on the AI Act are certainly to be followed closely for everyone interested in, in generative AI. No, interesting. Um, well, today, and now I'm speaking of AI in general, as far as AI is concerned, I think everybody agrees that the proof of the pudding will be in the eating, like they like to say. Um, <clears throat> currently, I believe that nobody really knows how big an impact AI will have specifically on the workplace and when, it, and when it, that will happen. Some say tomorrow, some say within a couple of years. It's a bit like very difficult to, to assess that. But in any case, what we see is uh, that businesses are still exploring how AI can effectively improve the workspace. DLA has, on a global scale, um, took a survey from our multinational clients and just on this, this topic, so how are you basically looking at AI and, and are you already using it, etc. And quite amazingly, you have 71% of the respondents confirmed that they are still in the exploration phase, which make, I mean, confirms that we're still very much in, we don't know what it is, we still need to test it a bit without actively using in their uh, AI in their business processes. But that also means that there are 29% out there that already are using AI, which in my, my view is already a lot. Um, so you could say indeed that it will come rather sooner than we expect and later. So that's something we need to, I mean, employers really need to act now to stay ahead of the curve. Um, that's something that you really need to, to, to focus on. Another thing we asked is, most common AI implications our clients foresee in the future that they will use. So I'm just looking at my notes now. So the top five are, you have R&D product development, you have customer services like chatbots, etc. You have operation supply chain, uh, 55, 54%, and the previous two at 59% and 57%. And also HR and recruitment is also in the top five, 44%. So. If you look at these items, most of them concern ESG also. So there is a clear connection, in my view, between AI and ESG. And actually, if you look at things, it makes sense. Just a couple of examples to clarify. So ESG has a lot to do with supply chain integrity, obviously, and AI can definitely help ensuring that integrity. So when you work with external resources, we see that a lot with multinationals that... Uh, they want to impose strict compliance with ESG regulations such as diversity and inclusion, code of ethics, and be sure that you don't work with illegal subcontractors, etc. And AI can help with systematic monitoring of compliance with these ESG uh, things. And so that's also something we see in service agreements, that there is an audit clause in there to say at any point in time we can have access to certain kinds of information to well, proactively look and see whether or not you're complying with the ESG rules we impose on our subcontractors. So I think there is a key element that it could play. But also internally, yeah? so the well-being at work. 
Um, also a key pillar of the S in ESG. Um, AI can help that to improve meaningful work, to take away repetitive and, and basically boring tasks that you can just give a tool to do it and you can focus on more interesting stuff. Um, there, for example, you have chatbots or virtual assistants who can take away that from the employees and then they can focus more on what they really want to do. Uh, these are obviously a couple of examples. Uh, there are many more. But I think it's fair to say that ESG and AI, they share one major challenge, and that's basically uh, tapping into what Eleanor just said, is that currently there is a lack of legal framework around it, especially in Europe. I think in US and UK, ESG guidelines are more elaborate than here, definitely. Um, and there's also a lack of good practices around the use of AI. It's also the same with ESG. Basically, ESG, what we see now is that they're basically copy-pasting what's happening in the US and the UK, but obviously we're not Americans nor English. I'm sure everybody agrees. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not the same. Um, and because of this, I think that's also the, where the 71% comes from. Eh? So uh, people, that respondents that confirmed that are still in the exploration phase. So there's still a lot of cold feet when it comes to embracing AI at the workplace. So FT, uh, Sabine or Eleanor, you have any final thoughts that you want to share with our listeners on what I just mentioned? Yeah, absolutely. So on my side, I wanted to remind our audience that today we mostly discuss generative AI at the European level. I know we also touched upon Belgian regulations because, of course, we're all based in Belgium. Um, however, there is an increasing number of initiatives on AI policy and generative AI specifically at the international level. And I'm thinking notably about the recent developments with uh, G7, Council of Europe and DOECD. So any company that is, that is interested in, in the AI policy space will really need to closely monitor also the international policy area beyond what is happening uh, in the EU as well as at the member state level. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I think from my side, I've said it before, it's all about... Um, being proactive and not being slow. If we look at the pace of change and the speed of change, I heard somewhere when um, ChatGPT launched that its user adoption rate was the same as Instagram had over five years in 30 days. So if you just think of the adoption rate of new technologies, including generative AI technologies, the last thing we can do is wait and see. We have to ask the difficult questions, um, even those that we don't have answers to. We have to have the difficult conversations, even those that we're afraid of having because they're full of pitholes. Um, and I come back to my point. I think it needs to be a strategic topic that is discussed on the boardroom table and not left to the sidelines because we're too afraid to look at it because we don't have the answers. Yeah, I fully agree. So basically, clearly still plenty of things we need to think about. But unfortunately, we are running out of time. So Sabine, Elinor, Laurent, thank you very much for sharing your very interesting legal and political and policy-wise insights. And to our listeners, uh, please stay tuned to uh, our DLA Piper AI podcast series uh, to find out more about other legal challenges ahead when using AI. Thank you very much. This podcast is intended as a general overview and discussion of the subjects dealt with and does not create a lawyer-client relationship. It is not intended to be and should not be used as a substitute for taking legal advice in any specific situation.
This may qualify as lawyer advertising, requiring notice in some jurisdictions. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. DLA Piper will accept no responsibility for any actions taken on the basis of this podcast. See dlap.pr legal.